um, decisions. You know, every day uh, we make hundreds of decisions. Some of those decisions are small, some are large, some are life-changing, some are not. However, it should be the desire in the heart of every follower of Christ to know and to discern and to obey the will of God. Over the past couple of weeks in our Advent series, The Coming of the King, uh, we've been looking at uh, the coming of Christ. But today we're going to shift focus and look at the will of the King, the will of God, and seek to be able to discern what the will of God is for our lives. But what is God's will? Can it be thwarted? If God wills something to be, will it come to pass? However many times in Scripture we do read that God does will something to be, yet it doesn't come to pass. For instance, God desires all men to be saved. And we know in here that we're not universalists and we don't believe that everyone will be saved. So does our actions constitute some X factor that does thwart God's plans and God's will? So how do we explain this about an infinite, sovereign, omniscient God? Well, today we're going to ask these questions and we're going to seek to answer them by allowing what our text said, by the renewal of our mind by the Word of God. Now, our time together today is going to be more topical in nature than exegetical, which is what we are very committed to do here at Mission. Uh, However, the sermon will thus feel more like a seminary class than a sermon, but I've always believed that preaching is teaching just louder. Um, But that's what we're going to be going through today, and I believe that this topic comes at a time of year when people seek to make uh, resolutions that they're not going to keep or to make commitments that they're not going to keep as well. But this time of year, it does bring about a time when most people may be more in tune and more desirous to seek out God's will than they would at other times of the year. At the end of one year and the beginning of the new one always seems to bring about these concerns and uh, this thinking. Now, for in, in order for us to discern what the will of God is, uh, it's important that we make some clear distinctions as to what God's will is. And failure to make these distinctions can lead to a couple of different errors uh, and a couple of different extremes. Uh, one extreme would be the extreme of fatalism, which would be over here. And the other extreme would be the extreme of open theism, which would be over here. Fatalism could be best described as when I was in Istanbul, Turkey once, I was visiting one of my friends there, and as we were driving through the streets of Istanbul, uh, the people of the city would just carelessly walk out in front of any and every speeding car with no regard to their own actions and their own responsibility. And as I would step out in the street, I would be appalled by this to my friend, and my friend would say, uh, well, their idea is that, well, if Allah wills it, then me to die, then I want to die with no regard of their own life or no regard to their own actions. And that would be fatalism. Another error to the extreme would be open theism. Open theism, if you follow the logic that stresses, puts more emphasis on the will of man than the will of God, you follow the logical conclusion of that and you get open theism, which says that 
God has to wake up every morning and read the newspaper just as we do because he doesn't really know what's going to happen and everything is in motion and nothing is under his control. You know, both of these are errors. Both of these are theological blasphemies, shall we say. And so it's important that we make distinctions in the will of God without making these theological errors. And when we do make those distinctions in understanding the different aspects of God's will, then we can rightly apply it to our life. And that's what we're going to do today. So the first distinction that we're going to make today is the distinction between God's necessary will and God's free will. God's necessary will would include everything that he must will that's according to his nature. So thus, God must will to be holy. God must will to be just, loving, sovereign, etc., etc. If God did not will these things, even for one millisecond, he would be doing something that's contrary to his own nature. And thus, he would cease to be God in that moment. And in that moment, he would be doing something also that's contrary to his nature. He would change. And we know that God does not change. Now, this necessary will of God is what should give us a great deal of confidence and trust in God. For instance, we as his creatures, we are completely and totally dependent upon God. And this is good and this is right. Why? Because God is good and God is right. However, if there was even the slightest chance, which there's not, even for a moment that God ceased to will to do these things, to will to be holy, will to be sovereign, and so forth, that would be absolutely terrifying. You, as a creature dependent upon God, even for a moment that he ceased to will to be those things, it would be terrifying. And we would be trusting in a God who would be untrustworthy. However, praise God for his necessary will in the fact that he does not change. And those characteristics of him will not change. And thus he can be trusted. Now this is God's necessary will. These do not change. He must be these things. He has to be these things to be God. Now, in complement to that, not contrary or contradictory to that, would be God's free will. God's free will would include everything that God decided to will, but he had no need or necessity or obligation to will these things according to his nature. For example, this would include God's will to create. When God made the choice to create everything, he had no need or obligation to. God was perfectly content within the Trinity before anything existed. Before the foundations of the world took place, God was perfectly content within the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there was relationship there. There was love there. He was perfect in himself. Yet, God decided to create. He did something that he was not required to or necessary to do. Why? Why did God choose to create? There's only one explanation for that. To glorify himself. To glorify himself. To put on display his character, his nature, to the universe, 
and his goodness. That's why he chose to do that. Now, another act of God's free will would include his decision to redeem for himself a bride, to redeem for himself a people from every tribe and every tongue. Now, once again, God was not required to do this. It was not necessary for God to do this, yet God decided to do this. Why? Once again, to glorify himself. When God decided to save himself or save for himself a people, he did it to put on display to the universe the characteristics of his nature, to show the universe of his love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. He does this so that the universe may glorify him and worship him rightly, and so that his glory may be multiplied. You know, consider with me just for a moment in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And in this, we see something pretty unique here. Peter, writing about our living hope, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, uh, to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And listen to this. Things into which angels long to look. The angels, as wonderful as they are, they look at us and they see God's salvation being played out in our lives and throughout all history, and they marvel. Now, this salvation does not apply to angels, but they still look at us, and they are amazed at God. They, as creatures, are amazed and glorify God in this. And so it is with all creation when God's characteristics are put on display to the universe. Now, Considering this, we can see how God's free will is in complementary to his will of necessity. Now, another distinction that we need to make is the distinction between God's secret will and God's revealed will. Now, God's secret will, or the will of decree, as some would say, is best described by R.C. Sproul. I always like to quote Sproul, but he says this, that, God's will of decree is the will by which God brings to pass whatsoever he decrees. This is hidden to us until it happens. And so these are the things that God uh, wills to be and decrees, and we will not know until it happens. And it will not be thwarted. Job 42, 2 says this, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so these plans, these decrees of God, will not be frustrated. They will happen. The only frustration would be on our part as we kick against the goats, as the Bible would tell us. These are the things that are set in stone, shall we say. You know, for example, some of these things that, are, that God has decreed and ordained to be and will take place would be governments. Romans 13 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, 
For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So God decrees governments to be. You know, with those governments also comes the leaders of those governments. Nothing's outside of God's sovereign control. Think about this. In Isaiah, we read about the reign of Cyrus. Isaiah lived hundreds of years before Cyrus. However, listen to what he says. This is Isaiah. He says, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saving, or saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. And so you have Isaiah here speaking about King Cyrus, who would not be born for hundreds of years, and he is saying, what's going to happen? The point here is you can see that God is sovereign and in control in decreeing governments and leaders of those governments and what's going to happen. Nothing's a surprise to God. Another example of God's secret will would be the day you were born. Every nursery has this uh, text in there printed on the wall. It says, uh, Rome, or Psalm 139, 13-14 says, For you were formed in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Your birth was not an accident. God was in control of that. And he appointed a day in which you would be physically born. But God would also appoint a day in which you would be spiritually born. You had an appointment. You know, Acts 13, 48 says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Those believers there, they had an appointment into salvation. They had an appointment in which God said they're going to hear it, they're going to believe it. This is my will. But we didn't know this was going to happen until after it happened. Right? As we always say, we don't know who the elect are. But when we share the gospel with the world, the whole world, when they believe, we can say, well, they were elect. Now, also, with that would be the day that you die. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So we have an appointment. Our days, God, God has counted our days. Our days are in his hands. Right? The very hairs on our head are numbered. Jesus says, don't worry. You cannot add or subtract your days. God is sovereign in this. And then another thing would be the day of Christ's return. Matthew 24 is an entire discourse on the return of Christ. Yet Jesus says that the Son, that no one knows, not even the Son in his humiliation, does not know the day nor the hour of his return, but only the Father. The Father has decreed a day in which Jesus is going to come back. No one knows that. But there is a day that he's going to come back, and he will come back. This is God's decree. This is an appointment that he has made. But the list could go on and on and on. But the simple point here is to understand that there is a will of God that he has decreed things to be, but we will not know what they will be until after they pass. And this would be considered God's secret will. Now, 
Should we seek out God's secret will? God's secret is God's secret. And there's no need in seeking something that we're not going to be shown the answer to until after it happens. Also, this is why the Bible speaks so negatively about working with mystics and mediums and fortune tellers. We're not supposed to do that, guys. Unfortunately, for many people and even Christians, we tend to seek out God's secret will rather than his revealed will. Deuteronomy 29, 29 states this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. John Calvin, the famous reformer, says this, When God closes his holy mouth, I will desist from inquiry. So should we. God's secret will should not be our focus. It should not be what consumes our time, except to only look at it in hindsight and to give him his proper glory and honor for it. You know, think about that uh, famous story or the, the known story of Joseph. As Joseph goes through all these trials and tribulation in Genesis, we can see how Joseph is sold into slavery and what happens in Potiphar's house and how he's lifted up to be the second highest in all of Egypt. And at the end of the story, we look back and we read how Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he looked in hindsight and he could see that, you know, that was God's will, and I'm going to give him glory for it. And so that's the only time that we should really be focused on God's secret will as to when it has been revealed to us afterwards and give him his glory. Glory. Now, once again, in complementary to that, but not contradictory to that, is God's revealed will. This would be the will of precept, as some would say. And this would include God's law and his word. You know, there are some aspects of God's law that he has made clearly known to us. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. In fact, there are many things about God's will and Scripture that He has clearly made known to us. And it is the revealed aspect of God's will. Listen to this. It is one of which we have no right or authority to violate. However, we do have the ability to violate it. How do I know this? People do kill. People do steal. And people do commit adultery. God allows us the ability to violate this aspect of his will, but not the right or the approval of. And so we need to ask the question then, what are the things that God has revealed to us? The Bible's so clear about so many things, guys. We get so consumed with the things that God has hidden from us when we should be focusing on what he has revealed to us. Love God. Love your neighbor. Go make disciples. You know, David Platt, in his book Radical, and I want to paraphrase just a little bit here, but he states this, that when it comes to, the, to God's revealed will, the question is no longer what is God's will, but rather will I obey what has been revealed to me? That's the question. So should we seek out God's secret will, his, or seek out his, his hidden will? No. 
Should we seek out God's revealed will? Yes, absolutely. We should seek it out and we should obey it. And it's very, under, very important that we understand these differing aspects of God's necessary will, his free will, his secret will, and his revealed will. And so when we can look at that as if a diamond and looking at it through different prisms, same diamond, different angles, we can be safeguarded against making theological errors and worse yet, attributing sin to God, which so often happens when we clump it all in together. So now that we have a little better understanding of these differing aspects of God's will and understand that there is a will that he has revealed to us and that needs to be our focus, what is it? Would we seek out God's revealed will in a sign, a circumstance, a feeling, things that are very subjective? Will we look at things Will we look for God's revealed will in a big booming voice from a sky, the sky? No. We should look no further than his word to see what his will is for our life. Our text today states, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. The renewal of our minds through the word of God will help us discern what the will of God is. So what is it? What does God clearly reveal that his word or what his will is for our life? So this is where it's very, very important for you to take notes. So bear with me for just a moment and understand this. These are things that anyone can do a word study on and pull out, will of God. Now this does not constitute everything that God has revealed to us, but I think it lays us a pretty solid foundation. So, the first thing that God clearly reveals to us, guys, number one, is that you would be saved. That you would be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 states this, the, door, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2.3 states, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is God's desire that you would be saved. It is God's will, his revealed will, that you would be saved. So much so that we know the verse that God sent his only Son into the world, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Think about that. God desires this. He, he, this is his revealed will. Now, so often we, we want to look past this most important step, and we want to worry about, well, what's God's will for my life in a job or a relationship or whatever? And we don't focus on the most foundational, fundamental thing, and that is that you would be saved. Jesus says that what does it profit a man if he loses his own soul but yet gains the whole world? So the first thing that we must understand, guys, is that it is God's revealed will for your life that you would be saved. The next thing that we, God clearly makes known to us as far as his will for our life is that we would pray about it. 
Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants us to pray about his will. We should be going to God praying about his will. And when we pray to God about his will, it puts us in a proper posture in which we are conformed to him, which our desires are conformed and come in alignment with his desires. So we should be praying about his will. Now, quoting Sproul once again, I always like to bring this up, but uh, Sproul made a keen observation about prayer. You know, the disciples, they witnessed Jesus calm a storm. Yet, we never read in Scripture how they asked Jesus, Jesus, teach me how to calm a storm. Not one time do we read that. We, we see in the, in the Gospels how the disciples witnessed Jesus heal people. Yet, we never read in Scripture how the disciples said, Jesus, teach me how to heal people. We also read in the scriptures how the disciples witnessed Jesus raise people from the dead. Yet, we never read how they asked Jesus, Jesus, teach me how to raise people from the dead. However, what we do read in scripture is how the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, teach me how to pray. And so we should be going to God in prayer about his will. He's clearly made this known to us. Now, the next thing that God has clearly revealed to us that is his will for our life is that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.15 went through this this year. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Listen to this, that you don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit here is not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when we uh, were initially saved. Rather, it is being filled with the Holy Spirit in, in how a, a sailboat's sail is filled with the wind. It is being filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that we are empowered by and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the more we are obedient to God in his word, the more empowered by and controlled by the Holy Spirit we will be, and we will be more filled with the Holy Spirit. This is God's will for your life. And so if you've come here asking this morning, what's God's will for my life? Well, I'm telling you right now what it is, rather than God's word is. The next thing is that you would be sanctified. God's word makes it very clear that his will for your life is that you would be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, sanctification, as defined by the Westminster Shorter Catechism, says this, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. 
So being sanctified, friends, is simply this. Being more like Jesus. We are to be more like Jesus in every aspect of our life and very explicitly here in the aspect of sexual sin. Your sanctification should be at the top of your list. Don't be so concerned with the other things in this life. Be concerned with your sanctification, not the things of the world. Next, God makes it clearly known to us that we are to submit. 1 Peter 2.13 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. As followers of Christ, we should be marked as a people who submit. We should be a submissive people. Ephesians 5 tells husbands and wives to submit to one another. Hebrews tells congregations to submit to their leaders because they're keeping watch over their souls. And then Romans 13 tells us to submit to our government, as does Peter here. Dear friends, when we go against this, we are going against God's will for our life. Now, I know in a society that prides itself on personal autonomy and our own personal rights, we shake our fist in the streets and we demand our rights. However, that's not what I would see in Scripture. Scripture would tell us to obey our authorities so long as our authorities are not asking us to do something contrary to Scripture. We, friends, are to be marked as a people who are living peaceable lives and as a people who are submissive because that's what Jesus did. Jesus submitted to the Father. And when we submit, we are following his example. Next, it is God's will in our life that we suffer sometimes. 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, as you follow these steps going through, I'm saved, I'm praying about God's will, I'm becoming sanctified, etc., etc., you know, you're going to grow as a Christian. As you grow as a Christian, it is more likely, not less likely, that you could suffer for the name of Christ. The more obedient we are to God and the more we are like Christ, the more likely we are going to be opposed by a lost and dying world. However, as Romans 3 or 5 3 tells us, rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Next, and lastly, it's God's will for your life that you give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, Sometimes we're going to suffer for Christ. And we're going to be in some pretty bad circumstances. But it is God's will for you that you would give thanks in any and every circumstance. In any and every circumstance. 
we should follow the example of the apostles in the book of Acts and how after being beaten, they walk out. And what did they do? They rejoiced. They praised God, and they gave thanks that they would be considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So, friends, it is God's will for your life that you give thanks. This is His will for your life. So, what I've shared with you is what God's Word clearly and explicitly says about His will for your life. There's nothing subjective or mysterious here. It is very objective and it is very clear as to what His will is for your life. Now, this is the will of God in which He has chosen to reveal to us. So the question is, will we obey? It's not a matter of mystery solving. It's a matter of obedience. We are not to focus on those undisclosed things, but rather on what he has disclosed and obey it. So, for some of you here, you're like, Todd, that's great. I, I really appreciate that. I agree with everything you just said, but now I'm at a crossroads in my life. I have a decision to make about a job, a relationship, whatever. There's countless thousands of things. And there's many gray areas in life that you're sitting here and you're wondering, okay, I'm asking God's will for me in this situation. What is his will? Well, let me answer that the best way that I know how with a very important uh, contingency here in just a minute. But what we need to understand when seeking to seek God's will in these gray areas of life, we need to pick up those lenses of what I've just given you. And so when we're asking that question, we need to ask the question of, sanctification. Will this decision bring about the greatest sanctification in my life? Will this decision bring about the greatest thankfulness in my heart to God? Will this decision possibly bring salvation to some? Will it lead me to salvation? Whatever it is, we need to be asking these questions through those lenses of what I've just shared with you. That's how we make these decisions in these gray areas of life. And if we can ask ourselves, have I truly been saved? Am I truly praying about God's will? Am I truly being sanctified? Am I truly, truly growing in my walk with Christ? Am I suffering? Am I giving thanks and so forth? Because if you are friends, if you are Understand that God has given us a wonderful gift, freedom. He has given us freedom. And he leads us by our desires as our desires are conformed to his desires. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6 when he tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and then all other things will be added to you. He's telling us that as our desires are conformed and come in line with God's desires, nothing else really matters. And we will get what we want because what we want is what God wants. Charles Spurgeon said, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. How true that is. And so if you can honestly say that, guys, if you can honestly say that in your life, I'm, I'm truly saved. I'm truly praying about God's will. I'm truly growing in my faith. 
I'm truly suffering, I'm truly giving thanks, etc., etc., then you have freedom to do what your desires are because your desires have come into alignment with God's desires in those gray areas of life. Now, however, let's be honest. Now, for many of us, our desires have not truly come, to in, come into true alignment to God's desires. Therefore, there's one last thing that needs to take place. Confirmation. There should be some level of confirmation in those gray areas of life. Sometimes we like to give ourselves more credit than we deserve. And we're not truly growing in Christ as we should. We're not truly giving the proper thanks that we should. And so we should seek out confirmation in those decisions. And there are several means in which we seek out that confirmation. The first is God's Word. We should first seek out confirmation in God's Word. Psalm 119.105 says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The scripture text goes on and on and on. We should always go to God's word to seek confirmation. We should understand that God's word will never contradict God's will. They are always in complementary to each other. Now let me give you an example of this. Say you have someone who is, an unbeliever, who is a believer and is seeking to marry an unbeliever. Now, this, unbeliever, or this believer is saying, well, I know they're not a believer, but it, I think it's God's will that I marry that person. Well, let me very, be very clear to you with what God's word says. It's not. It is God's revealed will that you not marry that unbeliever. Because God's word tells us that we are not to be unequally yoked. What partnership does light have with darkness? God has clearly made that known to us in his word. So the question simply comes, guys, is are you in God's word enough and applying it enough to get that true confirmation to know what his will is for your life in these decisions in your life that may not fall as sinful or unsinful or, yeah. So we must trust in the work of God's word. Number two. We need to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As believers, we have a person, not a thing. We have a supernatural person at work in our lives. The Holy Spirit teaches us, convicts us, and leads us down the paths of righteousness to, so that our desires and our will will come into line with God's will. So the question is, is am I living a life that is growing my sanctification? Am I living a life in obedience to God so that I am sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit? We all in here should be sensitive to the whole work of the Holy Spirit in our life. However, many times what happens is, is we sin. And when we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit. 
and our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit becomes more and more numb. And so by living a life that is righteous, we will be sensitive to that and we will know more clearly what God's word will is for our life. Now, lastly, the means by which we seek confirmation is to trust in the work of God's people. Proverbs 12:15 says, "The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice." Proverbs 11:14 states, "Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors there is safety." And so when we surround ourselves with God's people who are led by his word and filled with his Holy Spirit, we will get the proper confirmation or possibly even the rebuke that we need to be doing God's will. You know, this is what the church does. The church comes along and surrounds that person who is entangled in sin and removes those grave clothes from that person so that they can see. The story of Lazarus gives us a beautiful picture of that and how at the raising of Lazarus, Jesus commands Lazarus to come out. He gives him that life. But as he comes out, Jesus tells the believers or the people there to remove those grave clothes. That's analogous to what we as the church should be doing is we should be removing those grave clothes from that believer and so that they can see more clearly the word of God. The Hebrews tells us very clearly that we as the church should not forsake the gathering. And this is a commandment. This is not advice. And so the question, guys, is are we gathering together with our church family often enough? And are we being transparent enough with our church family so that we can get that confirmation or possibly rebuke to truly know God's will for our life. This is an important step in the confirmation process. So, in conclusion today, and in recap, we need to understand that there are differing aspects of God's will. And by understanding that there are differing aspects, we will safeguard against making errors. Number two, since we know that our focus is to be on God's revealed will, that is to be our focus, and we are to simply obey it. It's a matter of obedience, not mystery solving. Number three, we are seek confirmation of our understanding by the help of God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. Now, in conclusion, I, I wanted to... Uh, do something that, that I really spoke to me in, in understanding this. And I don't know if you've ever read the Puritan prayer book, uh, Valley of Vision, but there was a, a section in there entitled Desire. And this is a prayer. I want to read you a prayer this morning. And I think it best encapsulates everything that we've talked about here this morning. So I want to read you this prayer. O thou that hearest prayer, teach me to pray. I confess that in religious exercises, the language of my lips and the feelings of my heart have not always agreed, that I have frequently taken carelessly upon my tongue a name never pronounced above without reverence and humility, that I have often desired things which would have injured me, that I have depreciated some of my chief mercies, that I have tried and erred both on the side of my hopes and also of my fears. 
that I am unfit to choose for myself, for it is not in me to direct my steps. Let thy Holy Spirit help my infirmities, for I know not what to pray as I ought. Let him produce in me wise desires by which I may ask right things. Then I shall know thou hearest me. May I never be imprudent for temporal things, but always refer them to thy fatherly goodness. For thou knowest what I need before I ask. May I never think I prosper unless my soul prospers, or that I am rich unless rich towards thee, or that I am wise unless wise unto salvation. May I seek first thy kingdom and its righteousness. May I value things in relation to eternity. May my spiritual welfare be my chief solicitude. May I be poor, afflicted, despised, and have thy blessing rather than be successful in enterprise or have more than my heart can wish or be admired by my fellow men. If thereby these things make me forget thee, may I regard the world as dreams, lies, vanities, and vexation of spirit and desire to depart from it. And may I seek my happiness in thy favor, image, presence, and service. Let's pray.